0: Good morning, Watermark. Today, our scripture is Acts 4, 32 through 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, Brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. All right. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. All right, living, doing good. Ready for your, watch your, to watch your game. Yeah. Um. The parks are going to be empty today. See you out there. It's going to be awesome. Okay. Now, um, this is our passage today. Um. It's sort of a sort of a refresh on like a passage that is in chapter two. We're going to go a lot deeper today. If you follow along um, in um, the Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals, I know some of you are doing that with Shane Claiborne. Hits this direct topic today, and it's brilliant. I also have here a copy of Jamar Tisby's book, uh, the guy who's coming next week, next Tuesday. Um, it's Black History Month. I always recommend um, some books here and there for you to read and and sort of. Uh, Here's some stuff maybe from a, from a perspective that you either haven't heard or haven't listened to. Um, the Color of Compromise is that book, um, again, the subtitle, The Truth About America, uh, The American Church's Complicity and Racism. It, it goes all the way back to the founding of America with uh, the church and how the theology was changed and shifted so that um, injustice could continue for profit uh, and how church a lot of church uh, leaders were sort of involved in that and what that means for us today. It's not just like a... Uh, a guilt trip it's a it's a here's what we're looking for and here's how we end it so read this book uh maybe you can get it now and read it by next tuesday and then take part in the conversation and maybe you'll hate it and then you can you can bring your questions and ask them and maybe you'll love it and then you can bring your questions and ask them either way i think you should read it um and maybe after that i'll i'll bring some more book recommendations for you uh so we can all become a reading community shall we um so let's pray and then let's jump into this passage, and I didn't write a long sermon today, um, not so that it would be short. Um, I didn't write a long sermon today so that I could have some space, so we could like explore some ideas that are here. Um, I have a few few stories in my back pocket. I have a few just to ponder. I have a, a little reading of, of today's passage um, in the Book of Common Prayer, just some stuff that we need to mull to mull about a bit, right? So let's uh, let's pray and let's do this. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for everyone that you've brought here this morning. I, I ask that we would be present, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open, that we would see people as you see people, that we would um, receive whatever it is for us that you, that you have for us to receive. Mold us and fashion us and make us in your image, um, the things that we will talk about today are the things that each of us struggles with, whether we whether we realize it or not. That things get in the way of our following of you. Things get in the way of our seeing each other. Things get in the way of us uh, establishing your kingdom in our own lives, let alone in our own communities. And so I pray that you would refocus us. I pray that you would you would uh, allow us to be present, allow us to to hear, allow us to receive, allow me to speak clearly. Um, Speak your prophetic words uh, through me somehow I pray that uh that it it would it would shake something loose in us in each of us um, that we are we would see ourselves clearly and see you more clearly than than maybe we have for a while. Thank you, Father, in your name amen okay so we're going to start in verse thirty two here of uh of chapter four. So turn on your Bibles. We're going to be around, we're just going to be in chapter four and chapter two of Acts mainly today, okay? Um, it says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Uh, and they shared everything that they have. Now, um, the previous passage right before this, so this is like the response that they had to this weird event. They're praying, um, they, they've come up against some opposition with the religious leaders of their day. And they're probably pretty pretty terrified because they come to realize that, holy cow, these people can arrest us, they can torture us, they can put us to death if they want, and this is going to be difficult. And so they start praying, but instead of praying that things would go better for them, instead of praying that it would be easy, instead of praying that they wouldn't suffer any persecution, and instead of praying that they would win, uh, they pray for boldness. They pray for faith and trust. The... uh, the strength to speak to their authorities as equals, which is what boldness in the Greek really refers to. That these people above them, that they would able to be able to speak to them as their brothers and sisters um, under God. Um, and so they're not praying for things to be easier, they're praying that they would be stronger and that this would manifest itself in their life. Um, and then there's this event where the room apparently shakes while they're praying this. It's sort of like a divine like nodding of the head, right? Um, And it's sort of like it also could be maybe um, God's excitement jumping up and down, right? Because because God's happy. He's like looking at his children. And finally, he has a people in this world um, who are going to be um, his presence in communities, outside of a temple, in houses, in cities, um, on the roads, his people are going to be present in the world in a way that they never have been before. And God seems to be pretty excited about what is happening here. Like he seems to join them in this, in the celebration. And so now what happens is they're filled with the spirits. And after they're filled with the spirit, what happens is um, there's encouragements. They're emboldened. Not just to speak in a powerful way to powerful people, but also to live in a unique way. Um, this boldness that they have, it doesn't just come out of their mouth it manifests itself in the way that they handle their lives and everything that they have, the way that they have been living. Um, it's, it's sort of like every time the Spirit comes over God's people in the book of Acts, you will see this drastic shift in the way that they handle um, the world around them, including all of the things that they own. And it's fascinating because they, they seem to see something that nobody else sees. It's not just this passage. Back in Acts uh, chapter 2, You can see this. It says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and the signs performed by the apostles, and the believers were together, and they had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, enjoying the favor of all people. So there's this phrase, everything in common, that keeps popping up when the Spirit comes over them, suddenly... Everything is in common, everything that they have. They don't have, no longer do they have like their own possessions that they keep to themselves. There's suddenly this whole other thing happening. And it threatens all of our way of life and our outlook of the world. It threatened theirs too. And it threatened the world around them. And the world around them didn't understand how they could do this. And so first I want to start off talking about what it means um, for something to be common. Uh, Very Common things... When we use the word "common" today, we're just talking about ordinary things—the things of life as you move through your day. There's a level at which, once you are no longer striving for survival, once you're not um, sort of, uh, once you're not like in survival mode, once you have shelter and food, uh, and uh, you know a little bit of safety. You then find that there are lots of things that are just very common. These things that were so important to you before you were at a sort of safe, stable place are now common, and they're not worth as much as they were before. And sometimes things, uh, some of them will break, and it's okay. It's not a big deal. You can replace them. And some things are just ubiquitous. You don't even talk about them. Um, Toyota Camrys, they're everywhere. Most of them are missing at least one hubcap, and they're everywhere. Um, and they're just, they're ubiquitous. They're common. Nobody says, look, Camry. Unless you're driving one, right? <laughs> Maybe you, if you just bought it, six months later, you're going to be like, eh, okay, um, But like, they're everywhere. My mom had one. My dad had one. We drive, drove one growing up. Like, that's, they're everywhere. It's a common thing. Um, common things are, they're simple. They're uncomplicated. We talk about people having the common cold. Like, it's just, we all have this tiny virus that is attacking our bodies. It's the common cold. It's not a big deal. It's not like the Wuhan coronavirus. Like, right, it's a, it's a common thing that we all get, and we're fine. Um, and then there's there's people that are referred to, uh, like the British call them commoners, right? Like, there's like the, the Meghan Markle was a, the commoner princess who now became a princess, is apparently now going to become a commoner again, but let's be honest, she'll never be a commoner again. We know this. Um, uh, not like us, right? Like, we're commoners. Um, and so... It's just, it means it's ubiquitous. The word common itself in the Greek is this word koine or koine, however you want to say it. It means unhallowed. It's not like, not divine. It's simple. It's not hallowed. It exists. It's there, but like, so what? Um, And so we're surrounded by common things and we desire to be surrounded by uncommon things, by hallowed things. Um, There are cars that when they go by, people are like, look at that. That's that's like a a hallowed thing. Like it's a different thing. It's nicer than what you've got, and nicer than what you'll ever have probably. Like, and they're hallowed things. You see them, you are like, man, what would that be like? And you, we all want to sort of be surrounded by unhallowed things, things that are amazing and beautiful, of great value, rare and irreplaceable. That's why we shared all shared that video this week of that guy who found out his three hundred dollar watch was worth seven hundred thousand dollars on that on that antiques roadshow. If not, look that up. Wow, Um, like. It's suddenly, it's like rare. What makes it hallowed? What makes it special? It's rare. There's not a lot of them. That we want to have things that not a lot of people have. Uh, a house that is different from everyone else's. Maybe it's bigger. So it's unattainable by most people, but you have it. So it's yours. So it's hallowed. It's special. And people are like, wow, it's so much bigger than mine. Um, and uh, we want, you know, a house that's different. A watch that is rare and has a brand name. We Stuff that was, that, that was made with care and time that, that, that took a craftsman, a master craftsman who studied his whole life so he could create this thing and now you have it. Somebody's entire life can be summed up in this thing that it belongs to you. And it's special somehow. Like it's, it's hallowed. It's nice. Um, the things that are hallowed by nature are less accessible. Um, n- very few people have access to them at all. Um, These things that are less accessible are the more hallowed things in our minds. A spot on the beach, a spot on the top of a mountain, um, a thing that you can get to that nobody else can. You build a house in the middle of a massive plot of land, and it's inaccessible to everyone except for you. And so everybody sees it, and they're like, I want that. Why? Because nobody else can go there. And so I want it to be mine. This is what it means to have something that's, like, hallowed. It's rare. Um, And it's not just stuff. It's not just It's not just tangible things. It's intangible things as well that have hallowedness. An interesting career that is different from everyone else's. That, like, people ask what you do and you say it with pride. And they're like, ooh, that's, and it's always sparked conversation. You're like, that's why I do it right there. Um, And then there's, like, um, marketable skills that you have that not many other people have or a certain amount of letters behind your name, like PhD, you know. Yeah, all of these things are They're not as ubiquitous. They're not as common, and so you want them. An identity that makes you stand out as a rare breed amongst the commoners. An ability that makes you look, makes people look at you as if you have more value. So Luke talks about, uses this language, common language. He says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. All the believers were together and had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need? Now, um, he's saying they had these things that they kept as common, and he starts to name some of them, and some of them are fascinating. Like what? So I want to start off with what he's doing here: is he's not creating a new economic system. You will hear people interpret the Bible in ways that support their particular economic system or their system of government that they like. Um, to argue that the Bible somehow supports democracy and capitalism or Marxism or socialism or communism and, and that this is the biblical model, this is what we're supposed to live by. He is not creating a biblical model. I'm going to wipe all that away just for now for you, just as a gift to you. He's not creating an economic system. In fact, um, he's not trying to tell the world the best way to handle financial matters at all in the, in the social constructs of local society. Luke is actually telling us what happens when we are filled with the Spirit, and when King Jesus sits on the throne of your life, what happens is economic systems in which you exist begin to fall away. That is what's happening here. They have possessions, they have land, they have property. Um, and suddenly, when the Spirit fills them, they look around, and it's sort of like everything at the top here that was important and hallowed, and everything at the bottom that was not, it turns. And the unhallowed things become hallowed and the hallowed things become unhallowed and common even. And so they begin to share them because they no longer have any purpose or meaning or hold or grip on their life. Because suddenly the people across the table from them are are the image of God and they can see it. And these people have value and they're important. And there is an intense purpose in their life as they are citizens of the kingdom of God. And you can see it now all of a sudden. And so what happens is that everything in their life becomes common. All of these things that they had that were not common. And he mentioned some huge things. He says they sold property and gave the money to the people in the community who were in need. He says, I mean, the property that they lived in, not many people had property. And what happens is these these Christians, they move into all these houses together. And they leave their houses. Some of them were very prominent. Some of them were not. And they come together as equals into a single house Um, Usually about 30 people would live in these houses. It was an incredibly unique community. Um, And they're sharing all of these things that before they would never, ever share. Ever. And so they're selling property and they're giving the money to the people in the community who are in need. It says they sold possessions. Um, God's God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. People who owned land. If you know anything about the first century, then then you may realize how rare it was for anyone to own land. Except for a few people at the very top. And apparently some of them had joined the church. And they didn't think of themselves as so high and mighty that they should hold on to any of this. And so they were literally willing to sell their land and their things of great worth and their possessions. And so what happens is it's this shocking thing where they're selling their property and their possessions because, I mean, so few of them had any possessions at all in the ancient world, um, let alone property and land. And so what happens is they're filled with the Spirit and suddenly they see the worth and the value of of humanity and relationship and the needs of the people around them. And suddenly they see the meaningless uh, of living for anything else and having all these other things, and stockpiling anything. Because when Jesus sits on the throne of your life, all of these other things fall off the throne, and you see in Jesus the perfect image of God, and the perfect image of humanity, which makes you look at the people around you, and see the image of God in them, and it makes you see the humanity in them, and also to lift them up. And it's almost like When Jesus says, when you look at the lowly, you look at me. When you look at the man in prison, you're going to see me. When you look at the unclothed, naked person, you're going to see me. He's giving them a lens at which to look. And they're looking at the people around them, and they're beginning to see Christ in each other. And they're all just commoners. And so now, suddenly, Christ is in the common. And what happens is, water, once again, is being turned into wine. It's this miracle that Jesus does not just once not just in the physical spent manifestation of a wedding a bunch of water turn it into wine and now we celebrate it's Jesus keeps doing this he keeps giving people lenses at which to look at the world around them and suddenly the common water turns into wine and the things that we thought were wine turn back into water and fall away and just become um, useful for survival like water but wine I mean I guess you could try to survive on wine, but it's for celebration and that's what these people are so they're 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 water into wine. They're people common into hallowed beings and hallowed things. I mean, let's look at this passage again. I'm going to read it again. Uh, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. We're going to talk about this in a second. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Okay. From time to time, I think that's important. Um, modern Christians, we want rules. We want laws. We enjoy legalism. We like being told what to do, so we don't have to think about it. How do you want me to handle my money? Well, I want you to, uh, every time you get your paycheck, I want you to take 10% of it and give it to the church. Great. And I can do whatever I want with the other 90%. Absolutely. You match your quota. And so then they start, you know, you get your check, give it, and then you're an autopilot. You no longer have to think, and then needy people come through your life, and you're like, I gave it to the church. I get to, and, and so you, it's off your plates, it is no longer your responsibility, and you can move forward in your life with your 90%. And churches teach this, and they say, you have to tithe 10%. But I think when we teach this kind of stuff, it robs God of his 90%, because all of that money, none of it is yours. It it passes through your hands while you're alive, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and your role with that money is to establish the kingdom of God, however that looks in your life. When it comes to money, I'm This is the one place I'm kind of a Calvinist because I think it probably God is going to give you what God is going to give you no matter how hard you work for it or how much you reach for it. You have uh, an amount of money that you are going to have and the question is is it a little or is it a lot? Neither of that matters. The question is what are you going to do with that to establish the kingdom of God in the world around you? Who around you Will, will receive a seed of the kingdom planted in their life because you are present and because you realize that nothing is yours. Everything belongs to God and God's kingdom. And you are merely stewards of the whole thing, of God's enormous economic bank account in this world. That your real currency, that you're, that you're really supposed to be focusing on is the currency of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and, and reconciliation and this other stuff is all to serve that. That is the point of all of it. And so it says from time to time. So it's not like they were living up to like, I gave and that's it. It doesn't say once a week they sold something and they brought it to the church. It doesn't say, um, you know, every time they got a paycheck, they gave 10% to the church. It says from time to time, they were led by the spirit, not by the law. They, they were present And every morning they woke up and they prayed that the Spirit of God would be with them and that they would see what God is doing in the world. They were never on autopilot. They were always paying attention to the needs of the people around them and responding in real time. And so something would arise and they would think, what can I do to help this? And from time to time, as the needs arose, they would go and they would sell some property and they would take it and they would help the people who were in need. It wasn't... It wasn't even ritual. It wasn't law. Most of the time, we want just somebody to tell us what to do. I get emails that say, as a Christian, can I do this? I'm like, what kind of question is that? Are you just trying to get someone to tell you what you can and can't do so that you don't do the no things and you do the yes things and then you're on autopilot and then you're not even thinking? You don't don't have any kind of relationship with the Spirit. You're not being led by the Spirit. We want to be led by the Bible, not the Word of God, which is Jesus, and not the Spirit of God within us. We don't want to be present. We don't want to think. We especially don't want to think about our money. We want to give 10% and not think about it anymore. Not think about who around us is in need and and, and what we are keeping from the kingdom of God. We do not want to think about this. Um, And so it says from time to time, this is what they would do. They would look around and they would see They would follow the Spirit, and they would react. And then it says, and they would sell it, and take that money, and they would put it at the apostles' apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this apostles' feet thing. Let's talk about this, Um, because it's a little weird. I don't want anybody bringing money and putting it at the feet of the head of the church. It's super awkward. Um, And I'm sure there are megachurch pastors that practice this. It says what you're supposed to do, right? It says right there. Um, (laughs) It's how we tend to handle the Bible. Um, But uh, here's what's happening. So, in the ancient world, there were temples, obviously. And in these temples, there were these altars. Um, this is sort of a reconstruction of what sort of a Jewish altar near the temple would have looked like. It would probably have been much, much bigger. Um, uh, so the, the, the Jews had these altars, and they would lay things on top of the altar and an uh, animal, usually a dead animal, the blood would flow off, and then they would burn it on the altar, um, and the meat that was left over, some of it would go to support the lives of the priests who weren 't allowed to own anything, and some of it went to um, help like the widows and the orphans. Um, and then you have uh, the Gentiles also um, worshipped with altars. This is a, sort of I 've used this picture before. this is a like a, a Greek temple. Um, Remains sort of with an altar there. Um, but the altar was a, where they would practice and display their gestures of obedience. This is what they did to show their devotion and their obedience to this God. It was always in a temple. It never was separate from the temple at all. So they had these altars and they would do this. Um, and then the in, in Acts chapter two, what you see is the people receive a new temple. And it's not a temple made of stone. The Christians do. Um, No longer are they supposed to focus on worshiping in the temple made of all these big rocks and giant stones. Now, God tells them, Um, my spirit is going to fall upon my temple again and it's going to be you sitting in a circle at this table with the bread and the wine and I'm present with you there. And God makes a temple out of people, out of human beings. And so this temple um, becomes the place where the work of God is done. So whatever happened in the temple now happens in the church. By the way, the root word of, of the fellowship of the church is this word koinonia, Koina, it's the same word for the common. It's the gathering of common people, um, the fellowship of common people. Um, and so whatever happened in the temple will now happen in the church. Sins were forgiven in the temple. Sins will be, be forgiven in the church. People were healed in the temple. People will find healing in the church and be healed in the church. Um, people uh, were reconciled to God In the temple, they will be reconciled to God in the church. People were welcomed and found community and love and acceptance in the temple, and that should happen in the church as well. People should be made whole in the church. The church is not a place where we just simply gather and throw our tithes and offerings and and sing a bunch of songs and move on. It is the place where the world should be um, as it is intended to be. When we gather here, everyone has a place, everyone has a family, everyone has a purpose, no matter who you are, where you came from, or the life that you lived. Like you are here and you're one of us and we're brothers and sisters. Now, again, these ancient temples had altars. These church members also had an altar as well. It wasn't in the temple, instead, it, was, it became an altar made, again, of people. It was the apostles' feet. And so they would bring the money, and they would lay it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles didn't see themselves as the top of the hierarchy. They saw themselves as the bottom of the hierarchy, that they were merely here to serve and teach and lead and gather and bring the people. In other words, um, they weren't pushing the people. They were pulling the people. Okay? A lot of things can be, pu- can be pulled that cannot be pushed, and people are one of them. Think about that. Um, You have to lead them in a way that shows them what it is like. And so the money is brought and placed at the feet of the apostles. And the apostles use that money. They know who's in need and who is not in need. And they, they, they give accordingly. And so for the first time in history, what we see is people with an altar, practicing obedience of the altar outside of the temple, in the common area, in a house, in a dining room. In the middle of a courtyard, in the streets, in the marketplace, on the road, um, practicing commerce. Now they're beginning to see that everything that happened in the temple is now going to be on display in their lives. And as they move throughout their day, they're going to start realizing that like the altar... Is wherever they gather, it is no longer centralized in this structure. It is moving out into everything. And you begin to realize the whole world is the temple of God, the whole thing. By the way, this is what the message of Genesis chapter 1 is. You know what they, in in the ancient world, you know what took seven days to build? A temple. They planned the whole thing out so they could construct it in seven days and they place the image, the idol of that God in the middle of it. The earth is created in, in six days with that seventh day of party and restoration and just like the temples and right in the middle of that garden is placed Adam and Eve the, the, the image of the God. The whole thing is a temple. And this is the way it is given to us to understand. We don't practice religion here. We practice it out there. The whole thing is a temple. This is where we gather to remind ourselves of what we're doing and to stoke obedience in each other's hearts. Um, and so um, there's this new temple, new altars, new all of it. And and so we read God's grace again was so powerful. This is how they're practicing it. They're they're selling possessions and they're bringing the money to the altar, which is each other, which is which is the apostles, the leaders of the church, who are the servants of the church. Jesus himself even sort of said this. He says, "No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve." Both God and money. And I think we forget so often that m- matters of money are, in fact, uh, at the very heart of discipleship, uh, discipleship. I don't want you to like hear that wrong. Money is, is not discipleship. I mean, using your money right, being generous and spending wisely and, and not frivolously, that doesn't make you a disciple. However, being stingy, being greedy, having a constant thirst for more money reveals to you that you are not a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of the nation in which you live. You are a disciple of something else entirely. If you are drowning yourself in crippling debt so that you can hold up an image for the world to see, or so that you can have that thing that you so desperately want that you go heavily into into debt for it, and that sort of bondage, that reveals that you are not a disciple of Jesus. You are a disciple of something else entirely. Um, money and discipleship really do go hand in hand. And what happens here is that money is used in a totally different way than it was used in the ancient world. And God is calling us to do this too. And here's what I mean. Money in the ancient world and in today's world, I mean, we are very Roman. I don't think you understand just how Roman we are. Money in the ancient world was used to divide people, to create distance between people. This is what it did. Um... It, it, it created distance and boundaries between people and distance and boundaries is not merely between the haves and the have-nots. It's also distance and boundaries between the needy and the comfortable like many of us. There is distance between us and them and we have to admit that. And there is distance between the rich and even the intermediate. We have to admit that. Money creates distance. But the Christians, when they entered in to the church gathering, they began to use their money in exactly the opposite way, they, they began to use it to destroy distance and to destroy unevenness and to bring people together. Jesus will join us uh, in, and, and he will use whatever we have to make this joining, this unevenness end and, and bring us together. And I think so often we read the scriptures and we see, wow, they had such great faith and wow, they they, they had such boldness and, and trust and they were so brave and Um, And wow, they're so generous, but I also think that we tend to miss, there's this great joining that happens, that people come together when the Spirit of God is over them. They no longer see each other the ways that they did before. Instead, they begin to see the world differently. We strive for things in our life that are the things that are so hallowed for us. We want them so badly that oftentimes we will sacrifice so much of the things that God has actually given us as gifts in our life. I talked to so many fathers over the years. I mean, I've been, I've, been, I've, been, I've been preaching since 2006 here. I mean, in all of those years, I've talked to many times to fathers who, who, who kind of say, you know, they're in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they say, I screwed up, and I, I worked really hard. I was, I was trying to build something when I was younger. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I was trying to build something, and, and I had a family and a wife and kids, and I was, I, you know, I... Uh, the, the world taught me this is what a man does. And so I was trying to build this career and this thing so I could be have the identity of like, like the man that everyone every other man wants to be, right? Like, and, and have all this with, with the money and the career and the identity and the, the title. And I sacrificed my family. I mean, it's, it's the modern version of human sacrifice to appease the gods out there. They're telling you what you have to do. You, you're going to sacrifice your family on the altar and, and, and you're going to strive for this stuff. And now they're older and they're looking back and they regret all of it because they realize that none of this even matters. And they look back and I'm talking to them and they're like, they, they reach out to their children and they're saying, hey, I'm really sorry I wasn't there. I wasn't there and I'm, I'm mourning this every day and I'm so sorry. Can we try again? And they're like, no, you can't try again. It doesn't work that way. It's over. We can build a relationship from scratch again, but that child is gone. You will never see that child again. You never did see that child when he was here. This cannot be made right. You broke it. And I see this conversation happening all the time because the world is telling you what is important and you're not inviting the Spirit of God and asking the opinion of the Spirit of God in your life to give you the right lenses with which to look at everything. And we do this over and over and over again. There are people striving to build these houses and all they want is this huge house. And there are people who are losing their houses in fires and they get in front of the news camera and they say, it's okay. All that matters is we're all here. My whole family's safe and alive. And our pets and our family and my community, we're all still alive. We did. All this stuff can be replaced. And this guy over here is sacrificing his family trying to build this stuff. And it's not until it burns down that he will realize what was actually important to him. And the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God is doing is constantly taking these hallowed things and making them common. And taking these common things and making them hallowed. Everything upside down. That is what God is doing. I, I wanted to this morning. I did, again, I never have time in the first service. So I have a little time in the second service. So. Um, if you follow along in the Book of Common Prayer this morning, there was this passage that Shane Claiborne adds in there. Um, he says, this quote comes from the Apocryphal writings known as the Acts of Peter, which is fascinating if you ever read it. Um, Unless you make what is right left and what is left right, what is above into what is below, what is behind into what is in front, you will not learn to know the kingdom. Go down a little farther. Things are topsy-turvy in your kingdom, God. The poor bear gifts of great worth. The dead rise. The meek inherit the earth. Teach us how to live in an upside-down world where we are called to welcome the outcast, prepare a feast for the ragged, And forgive those who offend us. Amen. Like that's, the upside down world is what is being brought to these people, to these Christians. This is what it is. This is what communion represents, by the way. Communion, I mean bread and wine have been on the tables of 95% of humans for the thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's probably in all of our cabinets and cubbies at home. Like wherever we keep our food in our pantries, there is probably bread and there's probably wine or Welch's, depending if you grew up evangelical. I don't know. Like, depending on what it is. Like, these are the most common things that have been on every table throughout human history. And so Jesus takes it and says, this is me, this is my body, and this is my blood. It's broken for you, and it's poured out for you. Communion, the word communion means common union. Common union. It's also sometimes called the Eucharist. Eu is the word for good. Charis is the word for gift. It's the good gift. It's the common union of all of us. Though. The the gathering, the fellowship, again, koinonia, it's the same thing. All things in common. And what we're doing when we practice communion is we are seeing Christ in the common. We are taking this ordinary thing and turning it into this incredibly important thing that now is used to save and heal and reconcile. God's people. And that's exactly what it does. Of all the different denominations, the church is very divided. Of all the different denominations, if you put out bread and wine, everyone lines up to take it, to take communion. Why? Because we know what it is. It is the great thing that unites all of us. It's the thing Jesus told us to do. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. It is the common union. It's an exercise. We're flexing a muscle. Um, We're going to be doing like this worship night in a few weeks as priests. Look, here's Priest and Phillips and there's Tommy. I don't know. It's a bad joke. Um, it was. It's my middle name. I've had it a lot longer than I've been a pastor. Sorry. Um, now, what, what I so I so I got out my guitar and I've been thinking about like okay we're gonna play some older stuff that we haven't played in like like a decade. So I I started I started thinking in my mind. I don't remember how to play any of this. And so I hit play on like in my headphones and I but it all comes back. It all just comes back and it's there and it's as if I never stopped playing it. Um, and what is that? That that's muscle memory. Okay. That's what this is. It's kind of like your, your kids play Mario for the first time and they're terrible at it and you're watching them and they're like, step aside, kid, give me that thing. And you tear through it and you grab the magic flute and you jump through the warp and you get the thing and you kill Bowser, and they're like shocked at you and they're like, that's muscle memory, all right? <laughs> I know this game. Um, that's what that is. Communion, you're building muscle memory. The spiritual disciplines is you building muscle memory. You're taking an ordinary thing that is ubiquitous and is everywhere and is common and you're injecting Christ into it so that it becomes an instrument for unity, And joining two people from vastly different walks of life take communion together and receive the exact same amount of grace. And we know this. No matter how holy or sinful they are. Polar opposites. The same table, the same bread, the same Christ broken and poured out for you. This is what this is. The point of it, if you're practicing it correctly, if you're praying through it, is so that you will go out into the streets... And that conversation will no longer be a common conversation. It will be you conversing with the inescapable beauty that the image of God is standing in front of you. And you are trying to breathe life into it in that conversation. And so you're going to smile and you're going to listen. You're going to pour it out. That sight, every time you pass that same person, every day, they're at the bus stop. It no longer is just this common glance. There's that person again. It now becomes, if Christ is in the common and that, that look is common, what happens to that look is you begin to see this person and it's a prayer that shoots up from your heart. God bless them today. Injecting Christ into the everyday common. And these, these things, which mean nothing, suddenly become worth everything. And the things that were worth so much, finally, they They fall. And it all falls from your eyes. And what you begin to see is you see the people around you as incredible and as beautiful and as intricately created works of art placed here for a time and a reason and a purpose. What is it? Listen to them, see them, assist them, pour your life out for them. This is what we are called to do. The act of having everything in common in doing this, they are relegating everything to a place of unimportance in their life. Every single little tangible thing and lifting every person to the sacred place. In earthly kingdoms, things are hallowed. And oftentimes, people are in the way of these things. And so you must knock these people over and, 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 and trample over them to get the things that you want. That's earthly kingdoms. In the kingdom of God, people become hallowed. And things become things to serve the kingdom of God, and all the people gathered there. Um, and when we see ordinary, pe- like when we see people as ordinary, when we begin to see people as like they're, they're just so-and-so, they're not, they're not important, what you're doing is you're, you're turning the wine back into water and you're ruining it for yourself and for them and you're missing the kingdom of God. Everything that passes through your hands is intended to serve the kingdom of God. You are but a servant of the kingdom. Um, I've had enough conversations with enough very wealthy people over the years to know and hear the same thing over and over again, that they tell you wealth doesn't make you happy. And I know you don't really believe that. You hear that and you're like nodding your head, but you don't really believe it. You're kind of like, it's kind of a thing I need to learn on my own. God, hit me with everything you got. <laughs> hit me hard. <laughs> like, that's, that's what we want. Because we want to learn that. I had a couple conversations this week that are like, yeah, I got really really rich. And, and I was just miserable. And, like, it's the same story every time, guys. Like, sure, there's a spike of happiness. You're like, well, this is happening. Look what I can do. I can do things I never did before. And eventually those things that were hallowed become very normal. And now even the things that you used to enjoy that are small, you no longer enjoy. The current trap Supreme just doesn't taste as good anymore <laughs> when you can buy the Taco Bell. Like, it all sort of fades, and it changes, and it turns. And what they begin to realize is that, like, there's this temporary happiness. Yeah, but it eventually gives way to this deeper understanding that relationships can't be bought. They can't be bought. There are things that cannot be purchased. The true loyalty of friendship, of common and equally lived life and of intimate love of your fellow human being. It cannot be bought. It must be worked for and grown. It must be worked for. You must win it. Paul writes, and he talks to his people in his church in the book of Corinthians, and he says, in his letter, to, I think it was his first letter to him, he says, he says, I wear you like a crown. And what he's saying there is like a crown is not like, he's not talking about kingly crown. The word he's using there is speaking of one of those wreaths that like an Olympian, would wear after they win. Sometimes you'll see pictures of like Caesar, and he's got like these fig branches here. That's the wreath, that's the crown. And he would wear it on their head if they won. And it would deteriorate pretty quickly. That's actually the point of it. That this success is temporary and it fades rather quickly. So they're going to wear that thing after they get it. And they're going to be out and about and everyone can see and everyone's praising them. You won. You won like the marathon and you won the games, the gladiator games and all of it. But slowly it begins to fade and crumble and you can't wear it anymore. It all falls away and soon nobody cares what you have done. And Paul says, I wear you like a crown and he's constantly striving for them. It's sort of like a gold medal, like I won you, and I worked hard, and I won you, and you're mine. And that's how he speaks to people. But see, a lot of people who attain great wealth, they begin to learn that true respect for a person cannot be put on a debit card. You can't buy people's respect. You can't. Um, true friends who would die for you, who, who would live for you, which is much harder than dying, by the way, for somebody a friend who would live for you. It can be had by somebody who doesn't have two pennies to rub together, but oftentimes it escapes those who can have everything else. That you will see incredibly poor people with intensely deep relationships and wonderful, beautiful, life-giving families and relationships and marriages and communities because they have nothing else. And then you will see people with everything who cannot find a loyal, trusting friend who would live for them. Instead, they see the opposite. And so oftentimes, these goals that we have, these things that are so hallowed are the direct ticket to actually losing the hallowedness of all of life itself. I was... um, Oh, actually, I have one more story. But while I'm talking, uh, the community servers—you guys can go and gather the elements and spread around the room uh, as we prepare to celebrate the the sacred meal. Um, we were in a payway many years ago, about five years ago, because I, I was I was wearing a baby, you know, like a ring sling, Pilgrim Foster. He was he was like he was a newborn, and I'm wearing him, and we're in a payway. Me and my wife, and I had two other kids, and um, one of them was with my wife, and she was like. Getting drinks and sitting at the table. I'm at the counter. I'm paying for my pad Thai sauce on the side. Um, I'll decide how much sauce is going to be on it. Um, and I have another son who is uh, who is stealing fortune cookies uh, from the from the bowl. And this woman walks over, taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around and I look at her. Never seen him before. Don't know who she is. And she says, "Is that your family?" And she points to them, my wife and daughter, and I'm and and then she kind of goes like this. I'm like, "Yeah, this is my family." And that one stealing the Cookies. And she looks, and she looks at me right dead in the eye, and she says, "Your family is beautiful. You are You're a rich man." Like, what do you say? I'm just like, "Thank you." <laughs> and she walks back and she sits down at her table by herself. She, you can tell she's got life together, like fancy clothes, nice purse, and she sits down at the table and continues her meal by herself. And like I've never forgotten that because in that moment, she enters into my life out of nowhere, redefines wealth and riches for me, and goes to eat her California spring rolls. (laughs) In an instant, she turned it upside down while I'm checking my like budget folder on my app of how much money I and then and then buying. A meal at Payway, and I turn around to be confronted with the fact that riches has nothing to do with money and that riches has everything to do with the image of God looking at you in a way like a a great way to measure your wealth, a much better way to measure your wealth than your bank account, is to like look around and say, How many, how many people are, are are looking back at me? with unconditional love. And that I do the same for them. And that we're in life together. And that we're traveling the path together. And we're planting the kingdom of God, this thing which will last forever and have no end. A king who will sit on his throne forevermore. And that we have now entered into eternal life from temporal life already, long before death has ever even approached us. And we are now living this way. And this random angel woman at Peiwei turned my whole world upside down with one sentence that like you are a rich man and I think that was the first time I believed it like yes I am and I think about it like once a month for years now I want to give that gift to you now (laughs) you guys are very rich I don't think you realize it don't sacrifice this what you have for whatever they're telling you is out there how much time I got one more one more. I went to see, uh, someone gave us tickets, me and my wife, to go see um, C.S. Lewis's uh, screw Tape Letters recently. And there's this one line that stuck out to me. And the guy says, uh, he, if you know what Screwtape Letters is, it's like this conversation between two demons. And he's training one demon on how to sort of get this guy to turn away from God, right? And one of the things that happens is he's reading this letter, and he's, and he's really mad. He's like, you let the guy go on a walk? You let him you let him turn off the television or the radio and, and all the advertisements and all the people who were telling him what he had to do and had to be so that he would be accepted and find happiness. And you let him take a walk down to the lake by the windmill and feel the sun on his face and the wind on his cheeks. You let him do that? And then what happened? You let him sip a cup of tea that he really enjoyed. How dare you? When you do this, you're letting him realize that happiness is not found in all of the things that we are telling him life is found in and happiness is found in. Do everything you can to keep them distracted from looking up, from walking along the path of the meadow on a starry night. Don't you dare let them look around and say, wow, creation is beautiful. They will begin to think that they have what they need and we can't let that happen. And I thought that was incredibly brilliant. Why don't we take communion and ponder all of this? Uh, communion servers, you guys can come forward and take your places. It's body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ poured out for you. It's the common meal, the common union. This is what brings us all together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Fashion us in your image. Change us. Smash whatever glasses that the world has given us and give us new ones and let us see what really is important. Turn it all upside down. Let us uh, turn water into wine again. Let us find divinity in the common once again. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.